That was the voice of FDNY Captain Patrick Brown of Ladder Company 3, communicating with the Manhattan Fire Dispatcher on the morning of September 11, 2001, after the first plane had hit the North Tower. Ladder 3 responded to the attacks and immediately started to ascend Tower 1, the North Tower. Captain Brown was leading his company up stairwell B, trying to save victims when it collapsed. Captain Brown was one of 343 members of the FDNY who were killed on 9-11 and left behind a legacy that continues to inspire leaders to embrace risk in order to save lives while possessing a reverent regard for the welfare of their subordinates, all while being genuinely willing to help people at their greatest moment of need, whether it be someone trapped in a fire building or someone battling substance abuse. listening to the Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Bresler. In this episode, I'm honored to tell the valiant story of Captain Patrick Brown, compliments of the insight of his family, closest friends, and fellow firefighters who were influenced by his leadership, service, and courage. Pat Brown's story of service begins with his enlistment in the United States Marine Corps during the Vietnam War. Pat was one of the tens of thousands of Americans who felt compelled to serve their nation, but returned home feeling conflicted over the Vietnam experience. And one of a considerable number of FDNY members who had served in Vietnam prior to returning home to join the ranks of the FDNY during New York City's tumultuous war years. Fellow U.S. Marine and FDNY firefighter Jim Carney of Engine Company 6-9 in Harlem reflects on the hostile homecoming that awaited the Vietnam veterans. We had a tough and we both came home. We talked about things like that, how the country was and how messed up they, they, they made that conflict or war, whatever they want to call it. But, yeah, you know, you come home a different guy. You know, I know I did. Uh, it, it's, it was horrible. I was quite a mess. So, you know, it was hard coming home. It was um, no one wanted to talk to you. You know, you didn't want to discuss a lot of stuff. You didn't want to tell anybody anything. It was a very difficult time in the 60s coming home from a war, that's for sure. Jim reflects on the leadership dilemmas that he and young men like Pat Brown navigated in combat in Vietnam. Jim humbly concedes the subsequent wisdom gained, making life and death decisions as a young man. Most notably, the necessity to do what is right, regardless of the consequences. He also admits to the emotional scars of the war. And, th- you know, things come back to you that you you suppress. I know myself, I, I, I mean, listen, I've suffered with a lot of stuff, uh, things that Patty suffered with, and um, just things that trigger it. And all of a sudden, you know, it's like, it, it's just crazy. I forget a lot because I think I blocked a lot of it out. But I was over there 13 months, seen a lot of shit. I mean, we were out all night. I remember different things. And I said, we're, we're going back in, down past these water buffaloes, up around. And then we had a Johnny Lieutenant. And he was like, oh, I can almost see where we got to go. But if we go right across, I said, dude, you go that way. You're sure with it. You're done. And he went back. And, of course, he tried to write me up and try to talk to some uh, the, the, the 
um, warrant officer, but the warrant officer stuck up to me. He goes, hey, Connie told you to go that way. That's the way you go. <laughs> you know, it made me feel good. that I knew that but it was a pain in the ass way to go. Pass the water bubbles down on the rice paddies around the whole back another a good half hour more. But you know what? I knew what, what to do. And then that's the kind of stuff that you do, that you just do what's right. And that's it. Don't worry about the consequences. Later on, they'll come. You'll figure it out. Bobby Burke, who was one of Pat's closest friends, occasionally heard him speak of Vietnam as well. Another time he said to me, we were watching something on, on television about Vietnam. And he said, you want to know something? All those people wanted to do was three things. Grow rice, worship their ancestors, and be left the fuck alone. And I was like, uh uh-huh. And then, you know, I think that was about it. Once he got home, he was conflicted. He understood certain things that I'm not going to speak to because I never wore the uniform. But at the same time, he was conflicted about things over there having gone wrong and not being directed properly, the conflict not being prosecuted properly, always, you know, one step forward, two steps back. But at the same time, um, you know, conflicted about the people in the South and being left, you know, okay, so long. You know what I mean? He, he, that didn't sit well with him either, our pulling out. So there was a lot of conflict. I, I, I can't imagine the conflict for uh, veterans. After Vietnam, Pat Brown aspired to join the ranks of the FDNY. While patiently waiting his opportunity, he spent several years as a member of the New York Fire Patrol. In December of 1977, Pat's boyhood dream became a reality, and he was appointed to the FDNY. Retired Battalion Chief Don Hayde, also a former U.S. Marine, began his FDNY career during the same era as Pat. Both Marines would find themselves as young members in Ladder Company 2-6, a Harlem firehouse rich in both tradition and fire duty. Chief Hay describes the culture of 26 truck in the late 1970s when he and Pat were young members of the company. I think it was a, it was a good mix. Uh, they had an influx of uh, us new guys uh, in both the truck and the engine, and there was uh, you know probably just a little bit better than half. I guess the company was were older older salts who'd been there uh you know at the beginning and through the uh, middle of the the war years and i, I think the thing that was uh impressive about 26 truck at the time is that senior guys i don't recall any of the senior guys there ever talking down to any of us uh myself patty brown jay fishler um i, I think everybody all the young guys there had a had a passion for the fire service and wanted to learn so if you you did make a mistake. You weren't sure about something. Um, you know, it was more done uh, on a big brother type form of correction. Uh, there wasn't that hazing for the new guys or uh, things like that. That were, you know, that was fairly common at the time. But uh, again, I think 26 Truck was very unique in that. Um, they were very focused on their, their mission. I mean, uh, you know, we partied hard, but, you know, when you went out the door, it was, it was game time and uh, all business. You know, the job is definitely position oriented, but, you know, that was like sacrosanct in, in 26 truck. And you know, if you did make a mistake and you said, well, I thought or, uh, you know, there were people on the fire escape. So I, I went above, you know, when you were first due, let's say the first due OB, you know, one of the senior guys would correct you and say, hey, you know, that's that's not where you're supposed to be. If everybody's doing their job, you know, the second due truck is going to get the people and if everybody goes to where they're going to be. All the bases, all the bases are covered. You know, just go to your position. The religious regard for position-based firefighting and the respectful approach that the senior salts took to molding young men 
were values that were instilled in Pat that he would carry with him over the course of his career. Pat's intensity and instincts made him an asset in 26, even as a young member. You know, he was motivated like, like, like we all were. You know, he certainly had that intensity, uh, I think, that, you know, carried him a notch above. Uh, I mean, you could just see it, the fact that he, I don't know whether he actually graduated high school or he left high school just before he graduated to go in the Marine Corps. But, I mean, that's, you know, pretty intense, even if it's just graduating high school. Uh, between the Marine Corps and the fire department, he was on the fire patrol, so he certainly had his, you know, finger in the pie in the fire service. And uh, I think uh, for the, I guess it was, I don't know, 1975, 76, they had the uh, uh, gay bathhouse fire in, uh, uh, I think in the 30s in Manhattan or in the 20s. And, uh, you know, Patty was in the fire patrol. Uh, you know, he had they'd gotten there kind of early and, uh, you know, he went in and uh, got his brains beat in, made some rescues and stuff, uh, you know, while he was a member of the fire patrol. So uh, he always had that, that super intensity for the, for the fire service. It was funny, like, you know, Pat, Patty would even early on got a reputation that trouble followed him. Like he would go out for a run after work and happen upon a mugging or actually somebody would try. I remember somebody tried to mug him but the, and they were armed. Uh, I think they had a, had a, had a knife um, and he was like staying half a block ahead of the guy. But yeah, I mean, even, even firewise, like he just seemed to be, you know, he'd, he'd catch good work when he was working. Uh, one of those guys in the right place at the, at the right time. He was, you know, a fairly quiet guy around the firehouse. I mean, he would, you know, crack jokes and break chops with the, with the rest of the guys. Uh, you know, him, him and I had a lot of nice, you know, one-on-one conversations. I think he went back to school. Uh, I think we were both going back to school when uh, he was in 26 truck. Yeah, he was kind of a, a private guy, you know, intense. I mean, like to like to stay in shape. Love the love the fire service. You know, I couldn't couldn't see him doing doing anything else. You know, like a lot of us. Yeah, like I said, just you know, kind of a kind of a quiet guy. Not not a loud mouth. Just a quiet professional. Pat Brown was commended for personal valor on five separate occasions while a young member of Ladder Two Six between 1979 and 1981. In February of 1982, Pat transferred to Manhattan's Rescue Company 1. His time in Rescue 1 as a firefighter was short-lived. Lieutenant John Vigiano encouraged him to transfer to Brooklyn's Rescue Company 2, affectionately known as The Rescue. In May of 1983, Pat transferred to Rescue Company 2, where he would spend the next five years operating at fires and emergencies, alongside the likes of bosses such as Vigiano, Captain Ray Downey, Lieutenant Artie Connolly, and firefighters Jack Lee House, Terry Hatton, and Dennis Mojica. In August of 1987, Pat was promoted to the rank of lieutenant and would serve in Battalion 16 in Harlem. Fellow Marine Jim Carney of 69 Engine remembers Pat as a lieutenant in Harlem. Pat would later spend several years as the captain of 69 Engine in the late 90s. I forget exactly what what happened. It was suddenly I, I, no one even knew he was going, you know, going to get the spot, you know. But he's so well liked. He's such a good fire officer that you know he was able to get what he wanted to get. Um, yeah, so then we come six and nine. It was great when he was up there, you know, because we were like the kind of company up there. And I can tell you, you you understand it all. You know, he wasn't like a, he was just like me. Like we couldn't just sit around and like talk about our, what to do at a job or something. We used to always go out and do it, hands-on type guy show people what to do and you know some officers that maybe didn't want to do that they might not want but he was all for that all for that he was gung-ho he was great he was great for the company great role model i mean you know if you ever got to meet him you'd like him right away and that's that's the best compliment i can give it because he always had a very easy going disposition 
you know, never got excited about things, even at jobs. He knew how to do his job. His smile was contagious. And, you know, people, again, in the fire, in the fire service, as you know, being a role model is important, you know, to being a senior man, that type thing. And here he is as an officer. So he was great to learn learn from. And, he was, again, great, great firefighters. And, you know, he made a lot of guys' lives on the fire department what they are today. But they followed him, you know. So you felt so confident when he was working, you know. It's not that everybody's not that good at their job, but you, it's it's always nice to have somebody who's a leader who gets it, who worked his way up in good companies, and uh, made it very very easy for people to uh, to follow his lead, you know. And it's a, you know it's a tough little house to get along up there at six nine twenty eight to break in anyway. Sure. But uh, he he did it like just put his hand right in the glove, no problem at all. He was great at sizing up a job hmm. right away. Right away, and that's you know you have to sit around thinking you what he was going into, what floor the fire was going up to, what what if we going to high rise, where we getting off, what's going to happen. You knew all that right away, and he wasn't afraid to say. Well, with us, it was up there. It was different. You don't want to brag about your company, but guys up there knew their job, man. They knew where to go. They knew what to do, and I think that's why a lot of the officers like 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 working up there. You know, we always took care of them. We always did the job right, but. With Patty, I think there's a feeling, especially for young firefighters, to have somebody like him in control. Learning from a guy like that, a guy young just getting on a job, that's, you're learning the right way. It's like golfing. You go golfing and, and, you, and you never go for a lesson, you're going to be practicing the wrong way your whole life. But you get a guy like Patty Brown that's teaching you what to do the right way, right from the start, that's the way you're going to do it. Jim Carney speaks particularly fondly of Pat's enthusiasm and love for going to fires as well as the boldness and decisiveness that were central to his leadership style. It's not like just a, a job where you just go to work every day. So his whole demeanor with that was, was to get in and do the job. He loved, I mean, like when I drove a couple of times and it was a little slow, he would he was very close with a lot of the dispatches. He would call him up and go, we'll go down there. I remember going all the way downtown to go to a job. You know, I'm like, and some of the guys like, what the hell is he doing? I said, hey, he wants to go to work, man. He always he loved going to fires, loved going to fires, and trying to help people. He wasn't afraid of anybody, any of anything either. But he always wanted to go. He would go anywhere. I mean, he would do different things too, like which I like. Like we, I was driving one night. We had a job, and then one of the just just when the um, the bunker pants came in, and the bunker pants had nothing on the bottom, tightening them up, and a lot of the water was so hot that it got in. It actually steamed the guy's leg you know it was like boiling and uh and they weren't used to this this bunker past and all that stuff so the guy came out and his leg was like raw i said patty what are you doing he goes oh we're, we're going right down to the burn center i said we're on 150th street up here he goes i don't care and then we we're going down i said patty i don't know what we're supposed to be doing this he said to me what are they going to do send us to vietnam jim <laughs> i'm like okay pat let's go and we went all the way down to the burn center because as you know the burn center knows how to treat those things. You know, they, they heal from the outside in. You know, some of these places, they might just put stab on it or something. But, yeah, we drove all the way downtown on the rig. We, we wouldn't put them in the uh, EMS truck. We're, nope, we're taking them down. So that's the kind of stuff that he would do. And I love that. You know, but I always remember that when he said that. Too. What are they going to do, Jim? Send it to Vietnam? That was great. Exactly what he was. Yeah. He didn't think about politics. He didn't think about what am I going to get in trouble if I do it. He did what he was supposed to do and was the right thing to do at the time. Pat also served as a covering lieutenant in the Special Operations Command. Lieutenant Mickey Convoy is presently a 36-year veteran of the FDNY. 
and assigned to Rescue Company 3 in the Bronx. But in 1990, Mickey was a young firefighter who had recently transferred into Squad 41, along with Lieutenant Patty Brown. Well, I'll tell you, you know, everybody on the job back then knew who Patty Brown was. His uh, legend was uh, throughout the job, although Patty was a fireman and Harlemy went to Rescue 1 and then to Rescue 2, and now he was a lieutenant bouncing around. Everybody knew who Patty was, but once you met him, he was larger than life. But then again, he was just an ordinary guy that did extraordinary things. And Patty just was a guy that was very humble. He was very confident, but always humble. He would never talk about himself. I tried to get him to talk. He would always talk about Jack Cleahouse, the other lieutenant, all that he did in Rescue 2 and all that he learned from him. But then we would get into Patty was very intelligent, too. I always remember Patty coming into the firehouse. On Sunday morning, dropping the Daily News and the New York Post on the table for the men, grab a cup of coffee, and he had the New York Times under his uh, arm. He'd go up in the office, relieve the officer, and by noon he had read that Times cover to cover. He was very intelligent and very well-versed on almost any topic you could bring up and talk to. So that struck me first, but then, you know, with the firefighting, Patty obviously had great firefighting skills and I always said he had that sixth sense where the fire was, where the fire was extending, layouts of buildings. That was one thing Patty always drilled. As a young firefighter, he came out of 26 truck, and Captain Regan there wrote ladders three, and everything was position, position, position. And Patty always said that, Rick, it's easy. It's simple, rather. It's uh, position, position, position. I said, yeah, it's simple for you. Everybody else trying to figure out what the hell you're doing. But, And again, with searches, I mean, Patty... He just had an uncanny ability to know where people were and get to them. You know, he had great physical skills as well as mental, too. I mean, he was a great leader, and he was a great firefighter that he could lead you. On May 14, 1991, Lieutenant Pat Brown commanded one of the most iconic rescues in the history of the New York City Fire Department. The double roof rope rescue in Midtown Manhattan's Times Square remains one of the most iconic rescues in the history of the FDNY and the American Fire Service for that matter. The courage the firefighters Pat Barr and Kevin Shea displayed while hanging from rope, the same rope, dangling 12 stories above the crowded New York City streets under the watchful eye of Lieutenant Brown is forever etched into the minds of thousands of firefighters across the globe, in large part because the dramatic rescue was captured live on film and later recreated for television. Pat's friend Mickey Conboy remembers the moment in time vividly, not just the technical details, but what it conveyed about Pat's leadership style and skills. And he had the confidence that he made you believe in yourself and believe in him. If there was ever a doubt, there was, you know, he would make you not have that doubt. I always remember the fire in uh, Times Square, Jay, we had that life-saving rope rescue where uh, Patty Barr and uh, Kevin Shea went off the building and neither one, they couldn't tie off. There was no anchors to tie off to. And as Patty Barr said to me, Mick, Patty Brown made me believe that he wouldn't drop me. And I couldn't have had a better guy up on the roof. And we went down as the second rescue that day. I remember going up to the roof and looking where they tied off, and they didn't. The guy said, there's no way they did this. And I said, yeah, they don't know who they're talking about. Patty Brown can pull this off. And he did, as we all found out later on. He made these guys believe in themselves and do something extraordinary a life-saving rope rescue without an anchor. And he just had that great skill and confidence to get guys to do great things with him. And it just wasn't himself. He made you believe in yourself, too. So 
he was a tremendous guy. He was same thing with, you know, he was a tremendous person first and foremost. That he was impeccable as far as trust and honesty. I mean, he was the most honest guy they ever wanted to meet. He would do anything for anybody. Pat's good friend and longtime New York Daily News columnist Michael Daly vividly remembers the historic rescue and what it communicated about Pat's personality and his love for his men. When a whole city was introduced to Pat during that rope rescue in 91, I think most people who watched it were amazed by the footage and all that didn't understand exactly how brave it was because they didn't have anything to tie that rope off to. They were using two, I guess ultimately three firemen to anchor that rope, and Pat was leaning over the edge. And as a newspaper columnist, the thing I noted about it was that when it was all over and the TV cameras are there, you can see Pat grabbing Pat Barr to make sure Pat Barr is at the center stage, not Pat. Pat's not looking to grab center stage. I mean, Pat didn't mind having people take video of him, but he wanted everybody to be in. When many of those associated with the FDNY and the fire service think of Pat Brown's formative years as a lieutenant and captain, they routinely think of Pat's daring actions at fires in Harlem, the South Bronx, and of course, Midtown Manhattan. Though he undoubtedly saved countless lives at fires and emergencies in New York City in the late 80s and 90s, those who knew Pat best believe that his greatest battles were fought and won away from the fire ground during this season of his life. Even though he was not a Marine or even firefighter at the time, Bobby Burke would become one of Pat Brown's closest friends and confidants during this chapter of life. I first became acquainted with Pat, and I'll say it, I very rarely say it uh, as part of a large anonymous organization. <laughs> and um, let me see, the year was in 1987. So we had mutual friends. Then we started to uh, hang around together. I was a contractor, carpenter, uh, mason, plasterer at that time, living in Manhattan. And Pat was, he might've been at squad 641, I think at that time. So, yeah, we just, we hung around and we had mutual friends and stuff. You know, we just, we became very friendly for whatever reason. And, uh, you know, like I said, we had friends, they were restaurateurs. These guys, Jimmy Gilroy, Billy Gilroy, Frankie McHugh, Romy Burke. So, yeah, we had a group of uh, buddies. I'll tell you, in this large anonymous organization, (laughs) I had more time uh, working and and, and being a part of this uh, fellowship and this group. And Pat, I was told Pat was going to come up to me. Pat was going to ask me if I would, you know, kind of sponsor him, kind of help him along. And I remember telling the person, probably not. I'm not a Marine, former Marine, combat Marine. I'm not in the FDNY. I don't really have anything in common with this guy. As a matter of fact, this guy scares me a little bit. He's like a ticking time bomb. And and then Pat came up to me one day and he's like, hey, I was wondering, you know, and I told him, I said, no, nah, you know, I, I really don't have a lot in common with you. And he, and he started pointing his finger into my shoulder. He's like, uh, I see you here. You'll work in this, you know, program. You are doing And I said, all right, all right, all right. You know, we'll work together. And we did for uh, 14 years or 16 years. I can't remember. Uh, but yeah, and, and just grew to be very uh, good buddies. We'd speak uh, each night, nine o'clock. He was always very happy that he got in the door without killing somebody because he was a very righteous guy. He became the godfather of my second son in uh, just the May, May of uh, 
2001. I didn't know, should I go to my nephews? Should I go to my brother-in-laws? Who, who should I go to for the second godfather? And my mother said, why don't you go to Pat? And I said, boy, what a great idea, you know, because Pat was only used to holding babies that were in dire situations, you know. And sure. anytime we'd hand the, anytime we'd hand the baby to Pat, it was like he was like, oh, okay, take it away. But uh, I think <laughs> I think it brought him I think it brought him uh, calmness and a solace. And uh, he was the godfather of other kids I know. Despite not having children of his own, Pat was a godfather to several kids and served as a role model for many young kids. Timmy Hopkins' father, John, was a close buddy of Pat's. Both were military men, both shared an intense passion for the FDNY, and both lived in Stytown. Timmy remembers Pat frequently being around for family dinners and special occasions during his childhood. I knew him as a young boy, I knew him as Patty. Patty being close friends with my father, he often you know, broke bread in my father's house with my sister and I, and he was great, very humble. He was a quiet professional. He was a very funny man, uh, both intentionally and, and oftentimes unintentionally. But I think kind of what I remember most about Patty is, is he always showed up. And what I mean by that is whether it was just simply coming over for dinner, coming to my first Holy Communion or, or various other school functions, he was always there. Anyone who has ever been associated with the military or fire service, particularly in Irish circles, knows that alcohol plays a significant role in the social fabric of the groups. Despite the challenges involved, Bobby attests that Pat made the decision to pursue sobriety with the same zest that he pursued all of the activities in his life, and that it was both his fiercest and most triumphant battle. I never wore the uniform of the United States military, but I, I want to say something here. That is that very hard to speak for someone who's deceased and no longer with us, but I'm, I believe 110% in my soul that Pat would want people to know that the entirety of his effectiveness, of his success, of the way he lived his life was predicated on his sobriety. He was having trouble with certain things, with certain substances, and as a lot of guys are these days, and I don't give a damn what anybody says. There's still this, you know, uh, stigma. And he couldn't give a fuck about stigma. He says, you know, you know, oh, here's Captain Brown, and we're going to go drink. And he says, I don't drink. You know what I mean? Now, you have to be some big guy to come at him in that position. Do you know what I mean? He's like, that's not what makes me a man. As a matter of fact, when I put that stuff in my body, it's like putting gasoline in me. It, it kills me. And so the day he stopped that and the day he turned his life around and started marching the other direction, true warrior, true warrior, you know, understand that he's fought the exterior battles. Now he's going to fight the hard one. And the hard one is the battle inside, the battle inside of his head, his heart, and his soul. And he fought it, he fought it courageously each day. And, and so that's a, a very strong, clear point I want to make about Pat is that he understood as a true warrior where the battle was. And unless he took care of his own shit, he had no business taking care of anybody else's. A lot of the fire service he performed, I think, early on in his career was the result of being fucking crazy. You know what I mean? Later on in his career, it was the result of being absolutely clear, absolutely focused, absolutely uh, concerned with the with the, the safety of, of the men 
and the people he was providing the service to. But early on, I think it was just, you know, craziness, you know, and guys do that. You know, they have this understanding of what being a man is. And it's not, it'll get, only get you so far. But being a real man or woman, what have you, leadership, you know what I mean? There's a difference. I'm always talking about being the head of a department or the leader of a department. You know, the leader is the guy up in the front pulling the sled. You know, the head is the guy sitting on the sled being pulled. And and Patty was right. in the front, you know, pull, pulling that sled. And, um, and, and the way he pulled it, I believe, is, is by the power of his example. He didn't, what Patty says, what Patty thinks, what Patty feels, bullshit. Watch what Patty Brown does. Watch his actions. And, and they, they spoke quite loudly for themselves. Pat's closest friends remark on the energy that he's able to invest in activities, hobbies, and relationships once he embraced sobriety. Pat's fellow firefighter and good friend, Tim Brown, no blood relation, explains. Patrick got on top of his um, drinking problem, and I, and I think when he got on top of that, he had a, a lot of energy to do other things. He, you know, he did the yoga and the marathoning and, and the bicycling and everything. He had all that energy, and he had he had so much to give to all these guys. Because you know, Patrick straddled many wor- many different worlds. He was the yoga guy. He was the marathon guy. He was the AA guy. He was the, and he wouldn't talk about the other. He like compartmentalized, right? He wouldn't talk about a lot of the other parts of his life. He was very uh, very quiet. Pat was, by all accounts, a cosmopolitan New Yorker, not in an elite or pretentious sense, but in a regular guy sort of way. Raised in Queens in a converted Manhattanite, Pat loved to run the city streets, compete in marathons, train in the martial arts, attend Broadway shows, and date lots of pretty girls. He was also actively practicing yoga, decades before it became socially acceptable for a New York City firefighter to do so. Pat's friendships and relationships were at the core of his existence. Folks from a wide array of diverse backgrounds were naturally drawn to him. We began going once a month to a place called Zeno's on West 13th Street that um, Patrick's friend Bobby owned. And it, the group, you know, once, once Patrick is sitting at a table, people tend to gravitate toward that table. And so it was mostly firemen, but it was, uh, you know, Father Judge would come and sit with us. Uh, some other personal friends of ours, Mike Cannon, Jimmy Elson, you know, Terry Hatton, Dennis Mojica, and we, we would go sit there and, you know, Patrick wouldn't drink. He would always sit in the seat at the back so he could see the front door to make sure that he knew was co- who was coming in, like, like a, a good Marine sergeant would do, right? So that, you know, that really became the time where I would say I got close with Pat. The FDNY was afflicted by a spate of catastrophic line-of-duty deaths in the mid-1990s. These deaths took an emotional toll on many members throughout the FDNY, to include Pat Brown. Michael Daly recounts the Watt Street fire, which occurred in Lower Manhattan on March 28, 1994. There came a night I was uh, headed downtown and there was a fire on Watt Street. And so I went by there and uh, I saw these firemen carrying out someone I later learned was Jimmy Young. There'd been a backdraft in three 
guys that got caught and, and they carried him out. And then all the windows of the building filled with firemen who were all blessing themselves as they carried the Jimmy Young out. And that was like a scene that um, you'd never forget. And so I went over to Five Truck, where they were from. And the officer assigned there was Pat Brown. And there was Pat. I remember him standing out in front of Five Truck and he was there to kind of help these guys through. Jimmy Young had died right there. Chris Seidenberg had died soon after. Um, when they carried him out, he had a shamrock tattoo and all he wanted, he'd just gotten, he wanted to know if he still had it and they told him, no, it's gone. And then he then offered his immortal words, I don't care, this is still the greatest job in the world. And he died not long after that. And then there was John Drennan, who was terribly burned. He was up in the burn unit and he hung on for 40 biblical days. So that night I started talking to Pat. He said to me, well, he'd been in charge of uh, taking care of Drennan's family. So he decided that I had to meet Vina Drennan because she was just the greatest human being around. And I had to meet her. And we're going up the elevator in the burn unit. I didn't know at that point that Pat had spent a little time there after getting burned in his lungs. And, you know, the doors open and the burn unit has a particular smell. And I think smell triggers memories. And it opened, and then Pat kind of staggered back and then caught himself. And he turned to me and said, well, that's one thing you don't want to do when you're a captain is faint. <laughs> captain John Drennan's painful death took an emotional toll on Pat. But the strength and resolve that he drew from longtime friends and rescue two alum, Terry Hatton and Dennis Mojica, as well as Father Michael Judge, allowed him to help care for Captain Drennan's family. A bunch of us just kind of became close during that time and they included Terry Hatton, the fire officer, and Father Michael Judge, the fire chaplain, and then Vina, Tim Brown, Dennis Mojica, and it was just this kind of crew. And we'd go out to eat and then go back to the burn unit, see how things are going, and then finally came when uh just um what you just couldn't keep fighting. And Pat was the one who said to him, you know, it's okay, John, you can go. You know, we're going to take care of your family. You can go. And soon after that, Drennan went. Michael Daly amusingly remembers that Pat's assertive leadership was naturally on display while serving as the liaison to the family of Captain John Drennan. There were two probies who were assigned to the door. And Pat called him in and uh, said, uh, you guys pray? And they said, well, we do now, Captain. So he said, put your hands on this man. This is a great man. Put your hands on him and say a prayer. And they did. And then Pat had to go see Vina Drennan. So he tells the probies, nobody goes in this room unless I say so. Nobody. And they go, yes, Captain. And they go. And then shortly after that, the fire commissioner, Fian, shows up. And he goes to go in the room, and the probies tell the fire commissioner, I'm sorry, commissioner, Pat Brown says nobody can go in. Captain Brown says nobody can go in. So the fire commissioner says, well, you think you could call Pat, Captain Brown and ask him if maybe the fire commissioner can come in? They say, okay, we'll call. So they call Venus, and they talk, and then they turn to Fian, and they say, Patty Brown says you can go in, commissioner. <laughs> that, was kind of the, that was the kind of the way things went with Pat. The bosses, they had, you could tell they had, he drove them nuts. They had total respect for him. And one of them said to me, we never know whether to 
give Pat a medal or bring him up on charges. And I think his attitude basically was, you know, is that maximum fine it's easier to ask for forgiveness than to ask for permission. And then uh, he would just go ahead and do what he believed was the right thing to do. And that was always put himself at risk first, whether that's going into a fire, he'd be the first in, last out, or facing up to bosses, he would be the one who would step up. That was just who he was. The painful death of Captain Drennan was followed by another line of duty death that would hit home for Pat Brown. On the evening of October 8, 1995, firefighter Pete McLaughlin of Rescue Company 4 was killed in the line of duty at a fire in Queens. Pete's death hit Pat particularly hard. Both men were Marines, and Pat had been instrumental in helping Pete to get to Rescue 4. According to Michael Daly, Pete's death played a significant role in the authentic bond that Pat continued to forge with Father Michael Judge. Father Michael and Pat Brown became very close, and they talked regularly on the phone, and they didn't see each other. And I guess, you know, there was another fireman, uh, Petey McLaughlin, who was part of that whole bunch, who was like this, who was like built out of sunshine. <laughs> he was a magnificent guy who got killed in a fire. When Peter McLaughlin got killed, that just destroyed him, I think. I think that broke his heart. And that alarmed Michael. And then, uh, so the one fight that Father Michael and Pat ever had was that Michael basically told him, you got to slow it down. You got to be more careful. And uh, so Patty, you know, being Patty says, whoa. You tells me God. You told me God puts me where He wants me to be, right? So they had this big back and forth about what God wanted and what you should do and how reckless you can be. And, and then they, there was a rescue where Pat and Jeff Giordano took a young woman out of a building. Everybody thought she was gone. I mean, she was like blue. And um, Patty and and Donna kept working on her, working on her, working on her. And then you could see the life coming back into her. And she made it. After that, Father Michael says, okay, you're right. It's just God puts you in a few more places than he puts most people. <laughs> Which was kind of true. Pat just happened to be there in a lot of places. While dealing with the grief of their deaths, Pat continued to rely on his fellow firefighters. The entire group of brothers, affectionately referred to as the Knights of the Roundtable by Michael Daly, began to rely even more heavily on Father Judge for guidance and spiritual strength. Tim Brown was part of that intimate crew. Patty became the family liaison, and Terry and I supported him. Uh, and, you know, the family, the young kids, and Vina, and uh, so we really started becoming a threesome, me and Terry and Patrick, doing a lot of things together and relying on each other. And then the following year, Pete McLaughlin is killed in Rescue 4, in a fire in Queens, and again, we get hit. Not me so much, but really Patrick, because Patrick was the one that got Pete over Rescue 4 because they were uh, Marine, United States Marine brothers, right? And so those two line of duty deaths of people close to Patrick and, you know, me going through it with him and Terry really described to me the gravity of our job. And it really started hitting home again for me in the seriousness of it and that you can do everything right. And, you know, this is one of Patty's sayings. You can do everything right in this job and it can still kill you. 
And this started really hitting home with us in the mid '90s, and we were close with the families. We took, you know, we took care of the McLaughlins. We started, in, I guess, in those years, really starting to rely on Father Judge a lot more, and you know, meeting him at Zeno's once a month for dinner was really helpful. I think for all of us, he just had a special way of relating to us that most people didn't, you know. Uh, so we were really grateful that Michael Daly from the New York Daily News, you know, wrote the article, you know, like this is the Knights of the Round Table in the back room at Zeno's once a month. In 1998, the coveted captain's spot in Rescue Company 1 in Manhattan opened up. Pat Brown was both interested and eminently qualified for the billet. So was his good friend, Captain Terry Hatton. Tim Brown recalls that the competition for the spot was a kindred rivalry in large part because of the mutual respect that Pat and Terry had for each other. I think he forged his own path. I think someone like Captain Vigiano, I mean, again, everybody looked up to the Vig. So, and I, and I think in a way, Patty looked up to Terry Hatton, even though Terry was y- younger and little behind him in time in the job. But I think he really admired Terry in in many ways because of Terry's, I mean, he respected him as a firefighter, you know, both rescue two firemen, right? But Terry was really, really smart. And and I think Patrick really admired that because I I think they felt a kinship in, in both of those ways, in in intelligence and in experience and having proved themselves in possibly one of the best fire companies in the history of fire departments. Although Pat and Terry were both worthy candidates for the captain's spot in Rescue One, Michael Daly asserts that Terry had a competitive advantage over Pat. One kind of bump in his life was that I can remember the day that Pat found out that Terry Hatton was dating Giuliani's secretary. So guess who got to be the next captain of Rescue One? <laughs> right. Guess who didn't? Guess who didn't get to be the next captain of Rescue One? So instead, he goes yeah. to Three Truck, and uh, the guys at Three Truck, you know, it was like that. You know, Pat was like a legend, so they were all figuring Pat Brown's coming. Patty Brown. Patty Brown's coming. He's our new captain, Patty Brown. And up rides this little guy on a bicycle in spandex shorts with a yoga mat. And they're like, you're Pat Brown? (laughs) And that kind of sealed it during dinner when they had a salad. And then Pat said that he really liked the balsamic kind of dressing. (laughs) So Pat turned that into like the perfect place for him to be. It actually was better than Rescue One, I think, for him. And because he made it his own. If you went to Rescue One, I mean, that's where it is. The reason everybody wants to be there is that's Rescue One. And there have been a whole line of great people that made that kept it going. But what, really what Pat did, I think, with Tree Truck is he created it. He made it. It became special because of what he made it. I guess all fire companies are special. But this Tree Truck really took on a kind of, you know, recon, they called it. And it really was. And I think he, a lot of bad things for Pat out of Vietnam. I mean, the only time we ever talked about combat is <laughs> with his uh, 
his way of summarizing things. He said, well, it was very violent. That's what he called war. He just said it's very violent. But he also, the spirit of the Marine Corps, I mean, I grew up in a Marine Corps family, so I recognized it. And I think he turned three truck into a little bit of the Marine Corps that was dedicated only to saving lives. So you basically take all the good stuff out of the Marine and distill it into this firehouse in Manhattan and you make its goal to save lives at any opportunity, whenever they're needed. Pat might have anticipated serving as the captain of Rescue One, but his tenure as the captain of Three Truck was a blessing for many on the fire floor and beyond. Tim Brown remembers the impact that Pat had on those under his command, particularly those who Pat gave hope to. I respected him so much that I helped my friend Jerry Dewan, who was having a drinking problem, transfer over to Ladder 3 to work for Patrick. That was the very best person for Jerry to be next to and to learn from because he was going to learn how to be a fireman from Patty Brown for sure. But he was also going to learn like that respect for the firehouse, respect for the the job, respect for the uniform. And Jerry was a real, really, really good guy. He just had a drinking problem, you know. And Jerry was so happy that he was going to work for the legend, Patty Brown. And one of their first tours together was September 11th, 2001. I know that headquarters knew to send guys with potential who were getting in a little bit of trouble here and there. They knew they could send them to Patty and he would teach them and train them and drill them and, uh, and love them because he did all of those things because Patty saw himself in them, right? He saw himself in Jerry Dewan, and he knew that he could bring Jerry out of that dark place and give him a, a, a great future in, in the fire department. In addition to elevating the performance of young firefighters, Pat Brown had a love for elevating the lives of New Yorkers from every walk of life, particularly those who were down on their luck or struggling. Those who knew Pat best laud his love for the FDNY and the city at large. In the post 9-11 world, we often assume that the FDNY has always been viewed as an esteemed bastion of service in New York. But Pat's close friends assert that Pat was humbly at the vanguard of elevating the FDNY spirit of service. Love the city, the, the life of the city. I think elevating the fire department into social circles that the fire department wasn't really involved in. I mean, that happened kind of naturally after 9-11 because, you know, everybody came to help us um, from all walks of society. But that wasn't true really before 9-11. And I think we, you know, like he introduced me to Tom Fontana, right? Tom's a big Emmy award-winning television writer, and I wound up, you know, collaborating with Tom on different projects and uh, met many, many famous New York actors. Um, and that's that was all because of Patty Brown, you know? I never would have been in this crowd uh, if it wasn't for Patty Brown. But he, he was a legend. And, and he was, a, I think a lot of it was because he was an AA sponsor. And he would get calls, like, for example, sitting at the table at Zeno's, 
he would pick up his phone and he'd be like, oh, 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 hold on, hold on. And he would run out of the restaurant and he would talk some famous actress out of drinking because he was her sponsor. I mean, famous. But he would never say her name or another guy's name that he was their sponsor because that was Patrick. He was, he was loyal and he really, truly wanted to help people. And, and that's what drove Patrick. He wanted to help people. You know, the stories about him chasing down armed robbers on the street and, you know, all this stuff of legend and lore that his brother Mike would talk about. Patrick was very good with running, with yoga, with karate, black belt, with boxing. Not too many people were going to get away with anything with him. <laughs> And, but, but it was always doing the right thing. It was always helping people. His, his moral compass was dead on. In the firehouse, out of the firehouse. And I, and I think it's why both men and women were attracted to him. And, and I, don't, I don't mean that in an intimate way. Sure. I, mean, I mean that people wanted to be around Patty Brown. They wanted to talk to him. They wanted to pick his brain. They wanted to sit at the table at Zeno's with him. They wanted to work with him in the firehouse. Mike Daly believes that Pat saved as many lives off-duty as he did while operating at fires and emergencies. I think he's somebody worth learning about, knowing about, studying. I mean, he wasn't perfect. I mean, he could get a little, you know, I once saw him beat a guy with a bicycle um, while he's wearing his spandex shorts. He had a temper. He did still have his demons chasing him. But he also saved a lot of lives when, you know, people who had substance abuse problems in them. And I mean, there was a kid from Hell's Kitchen who was uh, still off the wagon in a bad way. And Pat went over and picked him up against the wall, held him up off the floor by his neck and said, you're in or you're out. Because I'm in, I'm in. Bobby Burke echoed Pat's devotion to helping others and his ability to help people to be the best version of themselves regardless of vocation or social standing. In a way, Bobby believed that Pat's own formidable obstacles were what fueled his heart for service. Vita Drennan said it years ago in a piece, I think it was the Dateline, and I never forgot it. She said, you know, Pat was like the consummate warrior. You know, he grew up, struggled, you know, became a soldier, returned from war, struggled came a fireman and, and, and it's like the, the, the circle of the warrior finally returning back to, to home to, you know, and, and, and literally with Pat being a neighborhood fireman, do you know what I mean? Uh, I, I think he was in his own, uh, uh, lived within the confines of his home time there. You see the thing about like, to me, and I wasn't a buff because I didn't care about fire science or fire service. I just, the guys I knew who were firemen were guys who kept their word the ones I knew anyway, who would do anything for you, give you the shirt off their back. And they were tremendous powers of example about how you should conduct yourself as a man in this life. There was more genuineness and ability, strength in their pinky, you know, than, than most of the young people and men today. You know what I mean? And that was because they were given a task where they could perform. And Pat was the embodiment of that. It was a dichotomy, whereas... You know, he's hard charging, he's aggressive, he's assertive, he knows his job. And then the other thing is that, oh, he's given a dollar bill to like almost every homeless guy we're passing on the street. 
I, I remember when he was doing that, I said, what are you doing? He goes, I'm giving a, the guy a dollar. I said, and I said to him, Pat, you can't give every fucking homeless guy. A, well, I said, don't say that. Every homeless guy a dollar. And he goes, they looked me right in the eye. He goes, why not? And I was like, oh, boy. On the morning of 9-11, Captain Pat Brown was on duty as the officer in charge of Ladder Company 3. Pat was 48 years of age and had been with the FDNY for nearly 24 years. The company was riding heavy, responding with more members than usual as the first plane hit during the change of tours. Captain Brown's final recorded communication was made via telephone to an FDNY dispatcher at 9.28 a.m. An hour later, Captain Brown and all of the men operating under his charge in Ladder Company 3 were killed when the North Tower collapsed. Some of Pat's thoughts and actions on the morning of September 11th are a matter of fact because of FDNY department radio and 9-11 telephone recordings. Some are a matter of mere conjecture, just as they are for all of the first responders who sacrificed their lives that morning, as well as the innocent Americans who were murdered in cold blood by a cowardly adversary. In September 2001, Tim Brown was serving as a liaison between the FDNY and New York City's Office of Emergency Management. Tim responded to the World Trade Center as both a liaison and a FDNY firefighter. He also happened to work in the World Trade Center. Tim recalls the chaos of that fateful September morning and ponders his friend Captain Pat Brown's final thoughts and deeds. Patrick Brown left this earth exactly how Patrick Brown would have wanted to leave this planet, helping others. And you know, I know this from talking to guys and uh, reading different accounts of the day of September 11th. And I was working for OEM, so I had my OEM radio in my hand and the fire and police radios in my back pockets. So I wasn't really listening that closely to them. But Captain Terry Hatton of Rescue One, my best friend, and the men of Rescue One got trapped up on the 83rd floor of the North Tower. Somehow they got up to the 83rd floor. And they had a localized collapse, and Rescue One was trapped. Terry was yelling for help. The worst thing a fireman could say or hear. Mayday, 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 Rescue One is trapped. Mayday, 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 Rescue One is trapped. And one, one of his firefighters made it back down to the lobby. And his head was, he lost his helmet, his head was full of blood. And he was begging some of the firefighters to go back up with him to help get Rescue One out. In that stairwell somewhere, going up that stairwell, was Captain Patty Brown with firefighter Jerry Dewan and the other guys from Ladder 3. I can guarantee you he heard one of his best friends, Terry Hatton, screaming for help. And Patrick would never, ever leave one firefighter in a building alive. He would never do that. 
And Terry, being one of his very best friends, especially motivated Patty. So Patty Brown, the American hero, larger than life, legend, his last act was trying to save the lives of his brother firefighters. And that is the most fitting example of how Patrick lived his life. Michael Daly notes his instinctive observation of three trucks rigged parked across from the debris field of destruction of what had just moments before been the North Tower. First of all, <laughs> in case anybody doubts that Terry Hatton and Patty were still competitive, you can see their two rigs parked facing each other right at the base of the tower. So you know both on the morning were on, on the morning of nine on the morning of nine eleven. Yeah, nine eleven. I went down and I look in the there's the North Tower. Okay. I'm across the street. I'm across the street, and there's Rescue One in tree truck. Okay. And uh, so you know Patty's in there, and you know that he ain't coming. You know, he's not leaving anybody. Pat Brown's remains would not be found until December 14th. In that time, his closest friends and family actively searched Ground Zero for his remains so that he and the others would receive a proper burial. FDNY members like Tim Brown and Mickey Conboy spent innumerable hours searching for Pat Brown and their fallen brothers. Then there were those American citizens, like Bobby Burke and Pat's brother Michael, who never anticipated the horrors of the 9-11 attacks, let alone the fact that they would be on the pile digging for their loved ones. Though one of Pat's closest friends, Bobby Burke was probably the furthest thing from a firefighter on 9-11. He was an actor. That's correct. Um, I was at Ladder 3 on that Thursday, 11, 12, 13, I guess, and Mike Brown showed up, and uh, there's like, Mike, what do you want to do? And he goes, I want to go look for Pat. And he just pointed to me, and he goes, and you're coming with me. And I was like, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know whether to say, no, I'm going to let you guys do that. I never, maybe three times visited Pat at his job. I never want, that was his thing. I didn't want to cross the line. We shared a car sometimes, you know what I mean? He had this old beat-up Maverick and this old beat-up Toyota Corolla. I'll tell you a funny story. After 9-11, I tried to get the Toyota worked on, and the mechanic came out. He says, who's the, the, the Corolla? I said, that's mine. He, I said, it's not mine. I said, I'm, I'm just – he goes, well, whoever, whosoever it is, he goes, has no regard for their own personal safety. <laughs> I said, you have no idea. But um, because the car was a mess, the doors flew open, no brakes. It was just uh, hilarious in one respect. Um, so I go down to the site and, you know, did what I could, you know, pump and settling tanks or bringing generators up, illumination, uh, gas cans. And I remember thinking maybe that was the first day I ever operated as a fireman and I didn't even know it. You know what I mean? Mike and I would subsequently go down and work and we had these crazy notions that oh you know maybe pat's hold up in a liquor store underneath there ha, you know and or you know whatever it was we we were always we didn't want to give up hope and and then all of a sudden it starts to settle on you but the enormity and the scale was lost on me i had no point of reference no way to comprehend the scale of what 
was occurring. Those who thought that they knew Pat best realized that even they did not know every detail about Pat's courage, selfless spirit, and interest. For example, Michael Daly learned Pat had recently taken up piano lessons at his apartment in Stytown. He started taking piano lessons toward the end. I mean, he wow. had, he, he, he lowered a Steinway piano from the roof down to get it into his apartment in Stytown. A few days later, this woman knocks on the door and Pat answers and she goes, hi, I'm the piano teacher. I'm here for Pat's lessons. And he goes, yeah. And then she's looking, she says, well, where's Pat? She's looking for a little kid. He goes, well, I'm Pat. <laughs> so he started taking piano lessons. He wanted to play piano. He, you know, he, um, there's no doubt in my mind, if he'd given time, he would have been a pretty good piano player. Tim Brown provides an incredibly enlightening story of the reach of Pat's service that even managed to surprise some of his closest friends. It's a story of Pat helping those in need while gaining insight that would inevitably make him a better fire officer. After 9-11, we didn't find Patty's body right away. We had to, when I say we, it's Patty's brother and a few of us who were very close with him. And we decided, well, let's have his memorial service around his birthday and the Marine Corps birthday. And so we went up to the funeral home up on the west side. And of course, Patty was a legend. So there were, I'll say hundreds and hundreds of people lined up outside the funeral home to come pay respects to Patrick and his family. People from many different walks of life were coming in. And we were, what we were doing is we were learning about Patrick's life in that room. But one particular group really stood out. And there were these young kids in a line like a snake. And they each had their right hand on the shoulder and of the one in front of them. And there were probably 12 or 15 of them. And then an adult was following them. And they came into the room. We were like, okay, thank you for coming. Who are you? And why are you at Patty Brown's memorial service? And Teresa says, well, these students are blind kids. And Patrick taught them karate to the blind kids. None of us knew that. In, like in his spare time, in quotes, he was volunteering to teach karate to blind kids. And so I'm thinking about it and thinking about it. And I'm like, how, like, how did this happen? How did Patty get involved in this? And why was he doing that? And what are blind kids really good at? They're really good at doing stuff without vision. What does a fireman do? crawls through smoke, has no vision. Patty was learning from them and taking it back to the firehouse. And he was using it to be a better fireman. That's quintessential Patty Brown. Patty Brown, the boxer, the karate guy, everything. He's just, he's just a different, different guy. I never met anyone as into the job, as good at the job, and as smart at the job as Patty Brown. Mike Daly shares his thoughts as well about Pat's duties as a karate teacher for the blind. 
and what it communicates about Pat's love for being a creator and connector of relationships for people from diverse backgrounds. He'd get bruises and cuts from them. He was to say, you know, it's a little tough on me, but it's great for them. But actually, I hadn't thought about this. He's watching them do and learn the martial arts. He's seeing how you react, how you act without sight. They would, they actually got pretty good at the karate. They were a number of them went to their, went to the funeral and they wore their geese to the St. Patrick's Cathedral. Blind kids in geese at St. Patrick's Cathedral. Other great images of when he got his guys in tree truck doing yoga. You haven't lived till you've seen Mike Moran doing the downward facing dog on the apparatus floor. I mean, I just I think that he thought that what he liked to do is bring great things about different people together and make something out of it. Pat Brown's friends were not the only people who would gain an even deeper appreciation for who he was to so many people following his death on 9-11. His family would, too. Pat's sister Carolyn explains that she learned just how much her big brother meant to his fellow firefighters following his death. I never met a fireman until 9-11. He kept me like that was his job. And the only time we, he would call up and go, hey, I'm on the channel two tonight. I did a rescue. And we'd see him on TV all the time. All his big rescues, he'd call us. Other than that, didn't know anything. Didn't know, I didn't even know he was in Ladder 3 when it happened. The loss of her beloved brother was heart-wrenching for Carolyn. Pat's death was also an impetus for Carolyn to get outside of her comfort zone and make new friends, particularly with those who shared a love for Pat. In the process, Carolyn would partner with Pat's FDNY brothers to devote considerable time to raising awareness for military veterans and visiting wounded troops at our nation's military hospitals in Washington, D.C. The charitable effort allowed those who were mourning Pat's death and 9-11 to grieve together while helping to give hope, encouragement, and purpose to others who were suffering physically and emotionally. A fitting way to honor Pat's sacrifice given that he too knew the harsh consequences of coming home from war. I mean, I didn't go into the city for a few years and then, cause then I, I, I recouped and then I, I went in for uh, a mass, the blue mass, which is cops, firemen. And I met, uh, I got very um, confident and met people from the, it's the fire family transportation. And I, I just shook their hands and I made friends with them. So the next year would be fifth anniversary and everyone's like, we got to do something for Pat for the anniversary. So I said, let's just do a big party in Manhattan. I don't care. Let's just do it. And everyone said, no, make it a fundraiser. So then I started fundraising. The fire transport, let me travel with them to Walter Reed. And uh, that was an experience. And I learned so much. And I became very tight with them. The firemen used to say, well, I, I don't know how you do it. It's your blood brother. And I said, you guys are blood brothers. So when we traveled together... It was, it was difficult because I don't know what to do. And you go in these rooms with these poor kids from, you know, injured vets. And their, their family would hug me, feel sorry for me. And I'm like, oh, my God, this guy is in a coma. Like, he's got no legs. Just craziness. So then that's when I learned, like, we're sad. We have the same kind of emotions I do with them because you really, it's really emotional, heavy stuff. And then you go party. <laughs> so it's completely really hard and really hard partying that's how I made friends with everybody because I'm like they included me because they got me I got them you know mm-hmm. so yeah that was uh, an amazing ride after 9-11 Pat Brown was not the only FDMI firefighter in his immediate family 
His younger brother, Michael, joined the ranks of the FDNY in 1984 and was assigned to Engine Company 37 in Harlem. Mike Brown elected to resign from the FDNY after a few years of service, which is rather rare. The reason? To pursue a career as an emergency room physician, which is practically unheard of. Perhaps the only time in FDNY history a member has done so. Bobby Burke, of course, met Dr. Mike Brown through Pat, but Bobby's friendship with Mike would take on a life of its own after 9-11. Bobby and Mike spent many hours digging for Pat and would become close friends in the years following 9-11. Tragically, Dr. Mike Brown, like so many other first responders, eventually succumbed to 9-11-related cancer. I have to say, first of all, I'm still processing Mike and and his demise. That was just, it's very hard to even talk about. But I would say for the two brothers, they both had such qualities of leadership and talent and intellect and bravery and strength. I don't believe that there was a competition with those two brothers. I believe that they complemented each other. When Pat was eulogized, Mike Daly said, yeah, Patty talks about his brother Mike as a doctor, but he always fails to tell you he was five inches tall. <laughs> so there was this funny kind of good-natured ribbing with the two of them. But Mike Brown was, I think, uh, in terms of his intellectual quotient, his IQ was a genius. He was an engineeric Roman. He decides to become a city fireman. The guys at Grumman have fallen down laughing at his stupidity. He goes to 37 and 40, he's assigned. And, and while he's there, he's, he's traveling up to Albany to become a doctor. Who does this? If you listen to him talk, he sounded sometimes like a punch drunk boxer, you know what I mean? complete with pictures of the two of them at Gleason's gym. So Mike was very cerebral. He, he was very intellectual. He could figure out anything. I used to often say, Mike, if I came into an emergency room and you were there, I, I said, I'm not sure how I would feel about it. Oh, yeah, you ain't going to die on my wife. <laughs> he was so funny. And uh, my kids loved him. Mike would go on vacation and Pat would fly out to Vegas to watch the dogs. And then Mike would come back and Pat would fly back. So they had this very funny relationship. But boy, they loved each other and they were proud of each other and they helped each other and they supported each other. There was no crazy rivalry or anything like that at all. Mike felt the weight of Pat's legacy. And uh, what we all tried to do, because there was a lot of maybe thunder stealing in those days after 9-11, we just tried to tell, if you tell Pat Brown's story straight, you don't have to, you don't have to embellish it. You don't have to lie. You don't have to say, oh, I knew him or he did this. No, no, no. Just tell this, tell the, tell it honestly and it'll take care of itself. And Mike understood that. So he wasn't threatened by it. He wasn't, we, we just tried to protect Pat's legacy. And that's what I always respected about Mike. He wasn't trying to steal thunder or ingratiate himself. And, you know, when he showed up at three truck, people loved him. He was just like this big goofy brother, but he was like smarter than all of them put together. You know, he had his, his bona fides of work in, in Harlem as a fireman for a little while. And he'd constantly laughing at himself and being self-effacing. And yet 
had this amazing ability, you know, uh, to, to help people. He used to tell me, you know, he'd come into work, Sunrise Hospital, Las Vegas, uh, caseload of 31 different patients. And he would, he said on his locker, it said master of the universe. And that just meant you are not dying. You are not going to die on Dr. Brown's watch. You know what I mean? And he was fierce. You know, he was fierce. You know, who had more grabs in their career? You know what I mean? Pat would always give over. He's like, my brother saves more people before nine o'clock in the morning than I've saved in the past 20 years. You know what I mean? If we're, if we're talking relatively. So there was a tremendous complimentary, brotherly, supportive, loving relationship between the two. And anybody who says otherwise is mistaken. Not that anybody would say otherwise, but I'm just telling you. Sure. These two guys were great. They were just powerhouses. Trees, like music, have always had a special meaning in the Brown family. Carolyn recounts the details of the occasions where those closest to Pat gathered to spread his ashes while also planting a tree in his honor in New York City's most iconic park. The somber celebration of life was repeated when Mike passed away. Pat, 1994, he had a little Christmas tree in the pot from his apartment, and he brought it out here and we planted it. My dad was here, and, and now we moved it to the front, and now we have Pat's granite stone. I don't want to say headstone because it's not, but it is. like It's what was at his wake that Mike wrote, and now it's in front of my house. And there's like concrete around it representing the towers. It's pretty neat. So we just planted another one for Mike in the yard. So the fire, they planted a tree in the park, which you're not supposed to do. And they put the plaque in concrete in front of the tree. Was, we had found, found him at that point. So we did like a second week. And we all, we now, you're not allowed in the park. And not, you're not allowed to bury people in the park. You're not allowed to do any of this. But the cops just kind of turned their heads. And I think there was like 20 of us. And it was the coldest night ever that year. And it was a full moon. And Mike handed out the ashes. And we threw him up in the air. And um, Mike Daly said, God bless Patty Brown. And the ashes kind of just twinkled in the moonlight. And we sang around the tree, the Marine hymn and other songs. The life and legacy of Pat's courage, service, and leadership continues to live on in innumerable ways. The impact of his life and legacy is palpable in those who were amongst Pat's closest friends. Bobby Burke became a firefighter shortly after 9-11 and knows Pat would get a kick out of his volunteer vocation. I'm a captain now. I'm a captain of a first two engine. It's in my little, my little area here, you know what I mean? A couple of districts, uh, 32 miles in the winter we cover. But I remember the first fire I ever pushed, and I was nine months in, and good job. You know, uh, two or three rooms, content. And I'm going down the hall, and I'm on the, the knob, and I remember the first thought I had was, I didn't fucking sign up for this. Like, that's what I was thinking. As my wrist started burning, my neck. And, and then the second thought, and it was Pat's voice, and it goes, this is exactly what you signed up for. And I was like, oh, shit, you know? And... You know, so we operated and we knocked it down. It was, he's informed me so many times. The funny thing was is that, like, Pat would talk about fire service. Oh, we had a good job. We had a good job. It was a good job. And I'd say, three families lost their apartments. How can that be? What's good about 
I didn't understand. I didn't even understand the vernacular. I didn't understand anything. When he would tell me about, you know, pushing a room or, and I'm hanging around this guy and I'm an astute guy, right? I, I picked things up and it wasn't until I started my training that I said, oh my God, this is a daunting task. You know, what uh, firefighters are asked to do just in terms of the strenuousness and commitment, you know, you could, I'm sure, go a whole career and not have a moment of truth, or you could have several of them back to back to back, you know, and having a moment of truth, I'd never really had one before in my life. And so they, they humble you, I think. Mickey Convoy has spent the years following 9-11, establishing himself as a superior fire officer in much the same way that Pat Brown did, through hard-earned firsthand experience. Like his teacher, Pat, Mickey has proven on numerous occasions that he possesses great instincts under pressure at fires, while preserving an infectious passion for teaching young members, particularly those in the FDNY's rescue and squad companies. Mickey speaks firsthand to the effects of Pat's mentorship, particularly as it relates to leadership at fires with members in distress. If you were in trouble, he was there for you. If you needed help, he was there to help. He was just had that uncanny ability to be in the right place at the right time for everything around him. He was a great guy to be around and I learned a tremendous amount as a firefighter and most importantly later he always told me as an officer, he said, Mick, just remember one thing. These guys are gonna work with they're born thoroughbreds. You don't have to tell them when to charge, but rather when to pull back. And he said, if they respect you, they will listen to you. Know when to pull them back. We'll get that gut feeling and know it. And then that's why we talk about in the uh, firefighter rescue class. I give all the credit to Patty Brown that day we had that fire on Walton Avenue in the Bronx in the 99 cent store. And I was up on the roof there and there was 10 other guys on the roof with me. And I just got that gut feeling something wasn't right. I didn't know the building was going to collapse, but I knew it wasn't right. We took the guys off and two minutes after we got off the roof, the building collapsed. And those where the collapse was, those 10 guys on the roof would have gone into that hole with those other guys that fell in. We had six guys trapped. It could have been that much worse. And I totally give all the credit. That was Patty Brown. But I even felt him that day like, hey, pull the plug. This is not the one you're going to push for. And it was the right call. And I just thank God for his you know, guidance that he, everything he told me, it came through 15 years after we talked about it. And that day on Walton Avenue, I know there's firefighters alive because of Patty Brown. Not me, Patty Brown was the one who taught me that. So I'll always remember Patty for that day. Timmy Hopkins was nine years old on the morning of 9-11 when his family's good friend Patty was killed. Pat's service and sacrifice and the consequences of the 9-11 attacks shaped Timmy's desire to live a life of service. Timmy enlisted in the army immediately after high school. He served in combat as an army ranger in Afghanistan. He then went to college on the post 9-11 GI Bill. He's presently a probationary firefighter in the FDNY and will graduate from the fire academy in September 2021, inspired to carry Pat's legacy forward. Yo, Cat Pat Brown, he was the definition of cool under fire, right? And, And what's so unique about him individually is we have footage of him on a parapet wall in 1991 on 7th Avenue, leading and planning a double roof rope rescue. We have his his phone calls from the 35th floor to the dispatch, and we know what he said 
via radio transmission when conditions worsened on the 44th floor. So he was a definition of cool under fire. And I think that's what every military man and woman, every member of the fire service wants to be is cool under fire. And when you look at Patty, you kind of peel back what made him so cool under fire. It's, you need to look no further than how he spent his time. Patty was mentally alert, physically strong and morally straight. And when you're moving through life with that, uh, lethal triad i think tactical success you know follows suit and patty continues to inspire me inspire me uh but not only me he inspires an entire generation of firefighters and his story has been spread further and wider than i think most people realize especially in the uh corners of the military uh, there's no doubt about that it was really truly an honor to, to know him and know about him Two decades later, and Michael Daly still has a visceral reaction to his evenings spent breaking bread at the Knights of the Round Table and what would become their final moment of truth spent together in Lower Manhattan. Yeah, actually, I talked about that in, in the eulogy in St. Patrick's. I mean, it was strange because I was, I'm like this scribe who gets invited to sit at this table. I mean, I never saved anybody. I never went to fly. Michael Judge was a kind of a fireman of another sort. And then it would it would be this table of these remarkable people. I mean, there was uh, Patty, his father Michael, there's Terry Hatton, who was like, Terry like knew every building in Manhattan. I mean, he studied, he made it a science. And there was Dennis Mojica who could dance like nobody and was like a lot of fun and a great fireman. And there's Tim Brown, who, uh, as he's shown through all these years after 9-11 is, you know, has a true spirit. And he really did. You felt like you were sitting there with the Knights of the Round Table. You felt like, you know, that's, these guys are knights. And then when you think of knights, you don't really, you don't think of them as like, you know, they're going out to conquer and all this. They are defending, they're protecting, they are preserving. They're willing to put themselves at risk at a moment's notice. It, it also made the time when they're not placing themselves at risk all that much more remarkable and valuable. My Pat would go like, you know, he'd risk getting killed in a fire a couple times in a month, and then he'd be like hanging out. <laughs> it's like, I don't even know how to describe it. I, I, get, I get choked up even thinking about it, but it was remarkable to be there as essentially an outsider. I mean, I, I loved Pat. I was friendly with Terry Hatton, though I'm not sure he ever really liked reporters too much. I was very close with Father Michael. I was friendly with Tim Brown and, you know, and Peter McLaughlin. I loved him. I had all these feelings for them, but I was really, when you get down to it, I'm an outsider. But they didn't, never made me feel like an outsider. And they made me feel that uh, I almost felt like I had a role there, which was to um, watch and um, record and write about them, which is what I did. I mean, I spent, you know, that whole time during John Drennan, I wrote about that, and I kept right straight up to 9-11 and long afterwards. I felt like that was kind of my role. I mean, it's a very modest role. As Michael Daly poetically expresses, Tim Brown is the only surviving FDNY member of the Knights of the Round Table. Living to tell the story of 9-11 and the sacrifice of his fallen brothers is both an honor and a curse for Tim. He has struggled with the guilt that accompanies a man's eternal realization that he survived a battle which claimed the lives of his closest brothers. Tim has battled his own demons in the same way that Pat Brown did over the course of his life, with courage, dignity, and humility. 
Tim believes that Pat's legacy is one of love, purpose, and compassion for those in need. Captain Patrick John Brown, United States Marine Sergeant Patrick John Brown, an American hero who led by example, who taught by example, who always did the right thing. If you are in the military, if you're a vet, look at Pat. I mean, he had, he came back from Vietnam and got spit on, man. And he, he was able to get through it. He was able to stop drinking. And he lived this incredible life after that he, he reinvented himself. If you're struggling, if you're a first responder, firefighter, police officer, EMT, paramedic, military, use Patrick as an example and, and hold, hold on that you're gonna find new life and new love and new meaning and new purpose. And it doesn't come right away. You, you have to be patient and be strong, but it does come. Take a moment to thank Carolyn Brown, Jim Carney, Bobby Burke, Don Hade, Mickey Conboy, Michael Daly, Tim Brown, and Timmy Hopkins for contributing to this episode. It's been an honor to bring you the story of Captain Patrick Brown as we mark the 20th anniversary of the attacks on under fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral mental emotional intellectual and physical rigors in high risk and ultra competitive settings by developing strength of mind body character and critical thought for more on this visit leadershipunderfire.com